Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, Ian Malcolm, and other characters from Jurassic Park. And joining me for the discussion is first-time guest Ryan Haupt. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. And producer Andrew, you are planning to join this discussion as well, correct? Yes. Seems like a natural. I know you're a fan of this film. For anyone who's not familiar, which if you engage with pop culture, I'm guessing is a very small slice of our audience, but uh, Jurassic Park is a 1993 film directed by Steven Spielberg. It starred Sam Neill as Alan Grant, Laura Dern as Ellie Sattler, and Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm, and it had a screenplay by Michael Crichton and David Kep, and it was adapted from the 1990 novel by Michael Crichton, and it tells the story of industrial sabotage, which sets dinosaurs loose on an island as an intrepid group of humans try to survive this disaster. Ryan... Do you remember when you first became familiar with Jurassic Park, either as a novel or as this film? I do, because the 90s was a weird time. Um, I was thinking about this recently because the the movie Prey came out, the new Predator mm-hmm. movie. Um, Dan Trachtenberg directed and it's, you know, Native Americans fighting against a Predator alien. And I was thinking about how, like, how weird was it that when I was a kid, and I presume when you were kids as well, they marketed rated R movies to us as children in the form of toys and video games. <laughs> so they'd be like, they'd be like, oh, do you want to see Alien Resurrection? You can't. But like, here's here's a, a toy of the Queen Alien you can play with. Or do, are you into RoboCop? Like, well, here's a cartoon about this hyper violent 1980s anti-capitalist movie that you can like play with. <laughs> Have by a purchasing RoboCop action figure, right? By purchasing our capitalist products, and I think Jurassic Park was in that milieu of just like, can't see the PG thirteen movie because you're seven. Well, here's the Sega Genesis game to play. <laughs> so, so there was a ton of marketing uh, projected at me, a dinosaur loving kid in the early nineties, and my memory is having absorbed the marketing like the tiny, you know, sp- sp- content sponge that I was and am, um, but. When I was growing up, my dad often had to work all summer, but my mom had some time off in the summer, so we'd go visit my grandparents in Florida. And then um, my dad couldn't always join us for for some, or if not all of the time. And there, the summer of 1993, I remember we, we went down to Florida and we came back, and I'd seen all this marketing for Jurassic Park, and literally as my dad was picking us up from the airport and driving us home, my dad said, so I went and saw Jurassic Park and I, I was like, oh my God, like, when can we go? When can we go? When can we go? And his only response was like, there's no way you're seeing this movie because it's way <laughs> too scary. It's way too violent. And I was so, I was so deeply disappointed on a level that like, I can't think of another movie. I was so saddened not to be allowed to see. And I was, I was seven. I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was seven years old. Uh, in the late summer of, of 1993. So my first memories of Jurassic Park are of disappointment, but my <laughs> current, uh, you know, late latter and current memories of Jurassic Park, of it's just one of my favorite movies that's ever been made. So I uh, remember the omnipresent marketing. Like you couldn't be unaware that Jurassic Park was coming out. And I was 11 uh, that summer. And I also remember finding out my parents were going to go see it and they were taking 
I believe my older brother and sister and me begging with my allowance money. Can I go? I'll buy my own ticket. And finally they relented and they decided to take me. Uh, and I remember vividly this one moment in the uh, in the kitchen scene with the Velociraptors of my mom looking over and seeing me curled up with my hands over my eyes and tapping my dad for him to look and then him just chuckling to himself. <laughs> because uh, I was happy to be there, but I was also so scared <laughs> for a lot of sequences of this film. It's it's a master of suspense doing his thing. And as an 11 year old, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Um, but then I also remember re- like going back and seeing it a few times in the movie theater. Um, and uh, just, I, I think this is one of the films that, are, you know, made me fall in love with movie making and with storytelling uh, in, in that way, in a way that has kind of defined my career, I guess. And like why, why I'm here on this podcast talking about it. Uh, I think Jurassic Park is one of those cortex for me. Um, seeing it when I did at the age I was and also just how well made this whole film is and that it still holds up. It was very impactful to me. Um, Andrew, do you remember when you first came around to Jurassic Park? I think I, my guess is I was like five and we had the VHS at home and we watched it as as like a family movie night under kind of the presumption that I'd probably be kind of asleep by the time it got scary. <laughs> um, I, that's that's the only way I could figure that mom and dad would do that. It's like, well, he's well, probably going to be kind of zonked out by the time it, it really gets scary. And I think the scary stuff like the the really scary is the kitchen. Right. I think as a five year old, even that's the section where I'm like covering my eyes. It, so like my memory of Jurassic Park is kind of like half formed memories of you know being a little kid and seeing it and knowing beats of jurassic park but not actually knowing about jurassic park like what's the story and and naming the characters and everything like i had elements of it and images of it in my head in 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 elementary school right as a young kid and then like appreciating it when i was an older teenager but also like appreciating it at 15 being like this was pretty scary and and now I'm like, I'm ready to deal with this. And like, uh-huh. I'm like doing it in a very different mode and mindset and everything. It was like, I'm not going to cover my eyes at 15 when it gets scary in the kitchen. But also knowing like, that was the scariest thing to me was mm-hmm. like this, this like stainless steel kitchen. Like I have images of like the stainless steel kitchen and the kids hands are bandaged and everything. I'm like, I don't really know what's going on. Right. I don't understand electric fences at five years old. And, but, and, you know, it's funny, I truly, I truly don't remember the first time I saw this movie, but, like, I kind of remember when I came online in terms of what this movie meant, because, um, for folks who don't know me, I am a vertebrate paleontologist by training, and so, <laughs> uh, The but, ideal guest. <laughs> but, like, that, I saw this movie before I started down that path, and so some of my earliest, like, cogent memories of this film are literally when I was asked to TA uh, to be the teacher's assistant for a natural history and evolution of dinosaurs class where this was a teaching tool. So like it was the movie was used to be both like, what did this movie get right? And what does it get wrong? And I think one of the persistent feelings I have when watching this movie is like, there's a lot about the, the science of paleontology that this movie gets wrong. Even even in 1993, like, you know, but some, some of it is just because it's an older movie. Some of it's because it just, I think, you know, we'll talk about the production of this film, but it was a little slapdash by Spielberg standards. And I think it, 
it all works in the aggregate, so I'm not criticizing it on that front, but I kind of love this movie for everything that gets right and everything that gets wrong. Like I think it like it 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 somehow toes this happy median line where the things that it gets wrong, I delight in how wrong they are and I like enjoy using them as teaching tools and the things it gets right, like I revel in as an actual paleontologist, like watching, you know, the, the stuff that I've dedicated my life to studying come, come to life in a really, I mean, there've been five sequels and I would still say this one is the best representation of paleontology on film that, that we have in, at least in the series of, of the Jurassic films. So uh, yeah, um, when we get to the trivia, I was going to throw it to you as a scientist and say, what? Do you have any trivia to add about the dinosaur No, we, side don't, we, don't, the... we don't have time for that. If you want to record an appendix, uh, a, uh, actually, uh, I, I have an answer to that question and we'll get to it when we get to it. But um, okay. yes, I appreciate, I appreciate you, you including that in the show notes. Well, yeah. and, and, and like mentioning the time period where it came out, like this is kind of a heyday of dinosaur media. Right. I remember watching this as a little kid. It's like, okay, but that's also because of the Land Before Time movies, which I just called the dinosaur movies. And also like We're Back and all that sort of dinosaurs was on TV. A dinosaur's tale. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the dinosaur sitcom. The dinosaur sitcom doesn't count for are we allowed to swear on this? Uh we would bleep it if you do swear. It doesn't count for bleep in terms of my my feelings about like dinosaur media at the time, but like the yes, you're absolutely right. Dinosaur's Tale, uh, Land Before Time movies. Um, I, I I what didn't they do the Flintstones move live action movies around this time too? The I think the maybe the first one was around this time, but they in like the later eighties or nineties maybe. Yeah, but like I've I've got a I've got a, a young child now, and um he's about thirteen months. And like I haven't yet emotionally dealt with the idea that I have to show him the first land before the time because I can't deal with Littlefoot and that leaf. Like I'm just not ready. I'm not ready. So mm-hmm. I I can well watch. you can start with with the other ones. There's 14 other ones that you can choose from. No, I gotta start with the first one. I gotta start with you know like uh, him and Sarah. Why was Sarah? There's so no mean? machete order for <sighs> land before time. If there was, I would I would consider it. But I mean, just consider that all of the dinosaurs are behaving with trauma responses, and it's way better to watch Land Before Time. You're like, okay, why is she so mean? Trauma response. My kid can't quite get through an episode of Bluey, and they're like seven or eight minutes. So. <laughs> right. might be a big ask right now. So, so my kids are um, three and five right now, and they're like my my son is three, and he's like a full on dinosaur kid. At the moment where it's like, okay, like given the option, he will choose a dinosaur movie. He'll watch We're Back or he'll watch Land Before Time or get one of the various sequels from the library and stuff. And so we like have been getting him dinosaur books and everything. And so he's like in that full like he's three years old. He can't like say his full name super coherently, but he's like, this is a parasaurial office. (laughs) It's actually not how I pronounce that dinosaur, but I also am not like I'm not a pronunciation I'm not pronunciation police. Like, I don't, you know, like <laughs> a lot of our pronunciations are coming from one of those, like push the button and it says oh. it and makes a growling noise books. And I'm like, this is not scientifically accurate. Also, so, I'm pretty so, sure this was recorded in China. Can you guys promise my brother-in-law is not going to listen to this episode? Um, uh, it seems extremely unlikely. Okay. That <laughs> yeah. He will he be got, downloading this one. He like his kids got into dinosaurs. His kids are a little older than mine. And like, they got him one of those press the button in the dinosaur book. And I kept trying to correct 
things and he and my brother-in-law not the kids my brother-in-law kept being like but, but that's what the book says i'm like yeah, i'm a i have a phd in paleontology i'm telling you like the greek and latin root words are not connecting in the way that they're supposed to connect with the way that you would say that and he was like but that's how the book says it and i was so i had i just had to walk away i just i couldn't i couldn't deal with it so i say parasaurolophus but i don't begrudge anyone saying parasaurolophus because there's a reasonable argument mm-hmm. to be made that that's also a, a, a correct pronunciation i appreciate your your openness to the pronunciations there well, and it may come that... up when i do the the summary of the plot you may just have to swallow your urge to correct me on some i of mean those. it's that whole thing where it's like it, the fact that you say it one way means that you likely learned it by reading it in a mm-hmm. book you know not yeah so so yeah like credit where credit's due or in this case the book read it out loud to you <laughs> yeah. i just double checked everyone the flintstones live action movie was 94 so it was in this heyday oh. of dinosaur media all right uh, let's jump through some trivia on this film because I've got a lot and then we'll uh, we'll do the plot summary and then have our open-ended discussion. So the film rights to the novel Jurassic Park were sold for $1.5 million before the novel was ever published. I did know that. I did not know this next part. Uh, so several studios were bidding and most of the studios that were bidding had a director in mind or semi-attached to the project if they had gotten the rights. So Tim Burton, Richard Donner, and Joe Dante all were in the mix to direct Jurassic Park if other studios had gotten the rights to the novel. Um, I can't imagine the Tim Burton Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's <laughs> Richard Donner. I can, I can, I can picture that one. Okay. Um, but also in the, what might've been category, we have the casting. So William Hurt and Harrison Ford were offered the role of Alan Grant, uh, to the point that Steven Spielberg had a, uh, artist render Harrison Ford running from a T-Rex and sent it to him. Uh, I mean, is anyone going to be shocked if you suggest that, like Alan Grant has a little bit of Harrison Ford in him, even <laughs> yeah. as played, you know, like, yeah. so no, that, that one did not surprise me. This one did surprise me. Well, well actually my, my trivia fact is that the, uh, the character Indiana Jones is based off a paleontologist, not an archeologist. I did not know that. There we go. Ah, oh. what is it from a, like a pulp series paleontologist kind of no, role? No, no, a real person who existed. Oh, Okay. Um, I mean, just knowing the origins of uh, Indiana Jones just being the Saturday, you know, the 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 kind of pulpy adventure stuff that they they had grown up on. Uh, no, it was a, it was a paleontologist who worked for the American Museum of Natural History uh, in in the early turn of the century, nineteen tens. Oh God, I'm blanking on the name right now. Hang on. Um, and by by based on, I assume you mean like aesthetically, not the Nazi fighting. Unclear. Uh, I don't know that there were a ton of Nazis in Mongolia where uh, Andrew is Andrew something. Oh, this is so embarrassing that I'm forgetting this right now. But I, I, sometimes when we struggle to pull something out, we imagine our listeners are all yelling the answer at uh, their, you know, their listening device. I don't think that's happening right now. Well, I will. I will figure it out before we are done recording. But okay. Yes. Uh, as far as the other casting, what might have been Jim Carrey auditioned for the role of Ian Malcolm and I, early 90s Jim Carrey. That would have been something. Uh, Roy Chapman film. Andrews. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, yeah. So there's there's a there's an animal that was found uh, in. He did these. He did. The, he was like the first Westerner to lead this expedition into Mongolia. Uh, which is where they originally found Velociraptor mongoliensis, so the, the Velociraptor that eventually became the Velociraptor in this film after a significant transformation. Um, but, you know, so, so these like harrowing expeditions into the Gobi Desert, which is still a, a vast repository of amazing fossils. Um, 
my favorite fact about those expeditions, and I think you guys will get a kick out of this because it like it it implies a story that we never got to learn, is that he found the top half of a skull of this mammal. We can tell that it's a mammal based on the teeth and the, the, the skeletal structure. And it ended up being named Andrew Sarkis after him. And it's the only piece of this animal that we've ever found. And were the fossil to be completed, it would be the largest land mammalian carnivore ever discovered. What? Oh, wait, where's the... Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. Where's the rest of it? We don't know. We've never found any other pieces of it. <laughs> is there a sense, and this may be one of those things where it's like this tangent is too long, of how much of ancient life we just don't have any record of at all? Like what over percentage 90, do over we 90%. actually have? So we're like, when we say what we know, we're scratching barely the surface of knowledge, basically, we, of ancient life. Uh we have we are aware of in like when i say we i'm talking about the the scientific community which comprises the the majority of human knowledge right um we're probably operating about a less like about a one percent awareness of all the life that's ever lived on earth okay well that's an eye opener Uh. And, and i actually i actually have that actually that idea will feed into some of the commentary I have about this movie. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, run through a few other casting might have been. Robin Wright was offered the role of Ellie Sattler. That's a Gwyneth very Paltrow. interesting choice. Yes. Gwyneth Paltrow and Helen Hunt both auditioned for the part, um, but they weren't offered it. But Robin Wright, that one's, like you said, really interesting. Christina Ricci auditioned for the part of Lex. And Sean Connery was considered for John Hammond. Uh, just just alternate reality versions of this film have all sorts of uh, Sean Connery would have been much closer to the book mm. yeah I know I like I've never actually read the book and I know there were some significant changes uh, to characters that were made in the process of transitioning it over to the film um, Spielberg had to oversee post-production of the film remotely because he was filming Schindler's List which would also be released in 1993 that is not a bad double feature from the same director for one year to release Jurassic Park and Schindler's List I'm going to dominate the pop culture side and then also the award side of things with that. Uh, The dinosaurs in the film are a mix of practical animatronics, puppets, and new CGI technology from Industrial Light and Magic. And famously, uh, this film is considered like a watershed moment of transitioning from practical into CGI for so much of uh, the special effects that are going to be done in Hollywood. Um, during filming, a hurricane passed nearby the island, uh, and it cost the production a day of shooting, but lots of B-roll of storm footage that we see in the actual film was taken during that storm. That <laughs> is interesting because I've spent, I, I've been to Hawaii, but I've spent significant time in Costa Rica. So like, I have so many Costa Rica centric thoughts when it comes to like how this movie portrays that particular Central American country. Um... Is there anything you want to share right now? <laughs> um, San Jose is not on the coast. So that scene where they're like sitting in like an island cabana talking about shaving cream and, and capturing DNA fragments. And they're like, the, the waves are lapping at this, you know, little, that doesn't little feel quite accurate to the geography. No, San, like San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica is, is smack dab in the central of the country, like up in the mountains. It is not. <laughs> so like little things like that always, always hit me, you know, in a, in an interesting way where just like, yeah. Um, but 
you know, that's it's it's fine. Like it, yeah. it, it 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 hits me because I understand it, but like it doesn't doesn't remove me from the movie. I'm still enjoying those scenes because they're they're interesting and well acted. So I'm not trying to be. No, I'm not nothing I say here where like I'm criticizing it is intended as a buzzkill. It's just been like it's here's additional information that like can inform how you understand this movie. Like I'm not the only American who's spent time in Costa Rica. That's kind of a popular <laughs> destination. So you know. Um, some other, oh, the, the main victim, uh, shooting schedule wise of that storm was actually Samuel L. Jackson's character was supposed to have a lengthy chase and then death scene, but the set was destroyed by the hurricane. And that's why, uh, there's Ellie discovers that his character has died. Dude, it's <laughs> so, it's so much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I think this is one of those, like Def- the shark not working better. in jaws makes things better. Uh, that not having, not seeing that death on screen makes that whole sequence better. Uh, the film was released on June 11th, 1993, would go on to gross $914 million at the worldwide box office, making it the highest grossing film in history at that point in time. Uh, with its re-releases, it has now grossed more than a billion dollars. If you're interested, historically, the highest grossing films have been considered to be Birth of a Nation, Gone with the Wind, Sound of Music, Gone with the Wind again after it was re-released, <laughs> The Godfather, Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., then Jurassic Park. So Spielberg beat himself moving from E.T. to Jurassic Park. Uh, then Titanic, then Avatar. James Cameron also beating his own record there. Then Avengers Endgame. Uh, but now with re-releases, Avatar has reclaimed the title of highest grossing film of all time. Not adjusted for ticket price inflation or anything like that. Um, Jurassic Park has a 92% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. In 2018, Jurassic Park was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Five sequels have been released so far. I can only imagine there will be more because they keep making money uh, for the studio. So I, I presume, even though they wrapped up the second trilogy, that there'll be a third trilogy at some point in the future. This is one other thing that I didn't, I don't think I ever realized, but it was kind of in the news recently that uh, Laura Dern was only 23 when this was filming and Sam Neill was 43 or 44, depending on which day of filming we're talking about. And, um, they, they've kind of both talked about that age gap um, and with Sam Neill saying like he was looking through uh, in a magazine where they were talking about age gaps between Hollywood leaving me- uh, leading men and their love interests. And he's like, of course, it's all James Bond. And then he saw his own picture in there and he's like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm on this list. Um, and I think I never realized because Laura Dern does not come across as like a, a young, innocent 23 <laughs> year old or anything like that. Well, there's um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of I mean. I think there's a lot about the way that they shot those characters. Primarily, I would say in terms of costuming, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of characterization where like they kind of meet in the middle age wise where like he's an immature young Mm forties and she's a mature young twenties. And like it's their relationship in the movie. I actually think is a lot better and healthier than it is in the books or Mm -hmm. or the book where I've, I've heard in the book. Is it accurate that she was a grad student? In the book, it is, it is, yeah, she's a grad student. She's also written as, like, a, quote-unquote, like, sexier character. Whereas, like, in the movie, she's, you know, costumed appropriately for doing fieldwork in Montana and going to Costa Rica. Like, she's not, she's not dolled up in any way that I think is inappropriate for, like, what the character is going through. Um, and she's presented as a peer, uh, you know, rather than a, a teacher-student. She's treated as an expert by Hammond. She gives... She she doesn't like she doesn't treat Grant as an authority or a supervisory role. She like treats him as a peer or someone that she's in a relationship with. I actually also think that the way like Grant responds to Malcolm's interest in her is like super healthy because he's kind of he doesn't ever really say, hey, Malcolm, cut it out. He kind of just like 
yeah, man, like, good luck. Like, like we're, we're, we're together. And if you want to be like a super creepazoid about it, you can, but like, I don't think it's going to go well for you. But he never, like he says like, Hey, don't Mac on my girl, dude. You know, like he doesn't do that. And so like, I think there's, there's things about the way they're portrayed in the movie that are actually healthier, more mature and more appropriate. The age gap, there's no accounting for, like, I can't, you know, I can't circle that square, but like it, I still like the way that their characters get on in the movie um, in a way that I, I, I enjoy when I revisit it. Yeah. Like, well, and again, because of how they're presented, I was so surprised when I read that there was a 20 year age gap. I was like, really? I like, I never would have perceived that. Yeah. The evidence inside the movie is nothing to be like weird about because in the movie, it's like, uh, I don't know. They're probably, I mean, she's younger than him, but they're probably like, 27 and 35 you know maybe 37 you know it feels like 10 years difference in the movie and since it's not like specified or anything mm-hmm. um but then yeah you have like the the actor stuff and it's like oh oh yeah hollywood yeah all right uh ryan do you have any brief dinosaur trivia you feel like uh is appropriate to share uh when we're talking about the jurassic park film presentation of dinosaurs which has defied for a generation what dinosaurs look like in our minds when we picture them no, because you said brief. But if you would like some <laughs> some longer thoughts, I can provide them. <laughs> uh, sure, anything that you feel is is relevant right here. Oh man. Okay. So, um there's a lot about this first movie because of the limitations of the technology in terms of the CGI and the animatronics. Cuz like, you know, I I am a vertebrate paleontologist by training, but I'm also a film buff. I, I don't have any training in film, but like I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So like, I like to think that I have some insight to share there. So there's some interesting ways in which the limitations of filming in the early nineties characterized the dinosaurs as presented. Um, a couple of the like top tier things when I'm, back when I was using this film as a teaching tool, um, the, the scene where they're in, we cut to Montana and well, okay. Oh, actually the, the scene at the Dominican Amber mine, there are a lot of Dominican Amber mines. They produce beautiful Amber. I don't think any of them are dinosaur aged. I think they're all different ages than that. So like you couldn't get dinosaur DNA from a Dominican Amber mine. Uh, when we go to Montana and they're like very lightly brushing off some, some sand from a perfectly preserved velociraptor, you don't get perfectly preserved dinosaur skeletons when the sand is that loose on top of them. It's, it's you, usually when you find like something that well preserved, what you do is you, you jackhammer around the entire thing as if it was like a block of cement. And then you pull the whole thing out and you pl- plop it on a truck and you drive it to a lab and the lab is where you would carefully like pulverize all of the sediment around it to expose that beautiful bone. So like, I just, I think that's like a part of doing field paleontology that this movie slightly misrepresents. It's not like a huge misrepresentation, but I just think the fine detail work doesn't happen in the field. It happens in the lab. Um, the, the shooting a shotgun shell into the ground to, to get a view of the, the subsurface. That's a real technology. It doesn't work at the resolution presented here, uh, but it is a real technology, so that's cool. Um, one thing I'll point out is that my the type of paleontology I do, I'm a mammal guy, so I don't do a lot of dinosaur stuff. I'm friends with dinosaur people, but um, 
you laugh, but that's not a given. Like I'm a I'm a mammal guy. Some of my, <laughs> no, I just my, like the term dinosaur people. <laughs> some of my best friends are mammals, but like I'm not a dinosaur person. Uh, <laughs> but but you know you can't become a paleontologist without learning a fair bit about dinosaurs. I think um, a lot of the genetic stuff. I, a note I took. So when I I, I rewatched the film for our discussion, because why wouldn't I take an excuse to rewatch Jurassic Park? And the one one of the things that stood out to me that I thought was like an it, it's the movie doesn't get it wrong, but I think it's an interesting point is when they're talking about like making sure all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are female. Um, there's two ways in biology that I'm aware of that like sex is determined. There's environmental sex determination and genetic sex determination. So environmental sex determination is if you've ever heard the fact that like alligator nests are buried at certain temperatures to get all of the offspring to hatch as either male or female. I so have like, heard that. So, so there's certain reptiles where, and, and, uh, alligators are archosaurs. They're, they're related to dinosaurs on a certain, you know, every, everything's related to everything. But like what that means is that there are certain or animals, organisms that the environmental conditions of how they are incubated and hatched determine the sex of the offspring so in things like alligators crocodiles the temperature of the nest which usually is a function of their distance from the shoreline and how much they pack like fertilizing fermenting plant matter around it determine the sex of the offspring in mammals that it's genetic sex determination so if you have an x and a y chromosome you are male if you have an x and an x chromosome you are female B.D. Wong's character, Henry Wu, says something about, like, all embryos start as female. You have to introduce uh, hormones to make them male. As far as I know, that is actually true. But it's it's whether it's an environmental cue or a genetic cue that causes that hormone to, to be introduced. Um, the interesting thing here with Jurassic Park is... When this movie came out in 1993, the idea that birds were the descendants of dinosaurs was a relatively new idea. And so that that whole thing where, like, Grant says, oh, well, like, velociraptors are, you know, similar to birds. And literally everyone at the dig site in Montana, these are people who are there to dig up dinosaurs, laughs at him. And, he's, <laughs> and he starts pointing out all these similarities. And it's, it's super interesting. Birds also use genetic sex determination. Um, they don't use the same chromosomes that mammals use. They use a, I think it's a WX and a WW. It's a, it's a slightly different. The, the reason I bring this up is we don't know exactly when in the space between alligators and birds, dinosaurs went from being sex determined or environmentally sex determined to genetically sex determined. So it's entirely possible that like the Triceratops needs to be incubated at a certain temperature to all be female and the Velociraptor needs to be genetically controlled to all be female. And I don't know that that was known when they made this movie, but I think that's like, I think that's a really cool like kink in the whole idea that, you know, Malcolm's supposition that you can't control the system because it is more complicated than you understand, you know? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So it's something that maybe out of unawareness, it still functions to explain some of the plot that we're getting. And I think, and, and something I noticed when I rewatched the movie this time, this isn't really a dinosaur fact, but Grant, Alan Grant is 
all over the place in his pronouns. Basically, if a dinosaur, if he's scared of a dinosaur, he calls it he. And if he's impressed by a dinosaur, he calls it she, even though he knows academically all of them are female. Oh, I've never noticed that at all. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting insight. Well, thank you for that uh, little bit of an explainer <laughs> on some of some of it. And I know this is a subject that you could just keep going did on. Did that make sense? Like, jump. did the, the whole... Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, no. Definitely. I, I was able to follow all of it. So thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Happy, um, happy to help. We'll be... F- Before we move on to that plot summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank any listeners who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the spoiler summary of Jurassic Park. Spoiler warning! I was watching this movie in in the later scenes when um, Ellie and uh, oh, what's the game warden's name? I always forget his name. I just think M- Muldoon. Name. Muldoon. When they were trying to escape the Velociraptors, I heard in the background a bellbird. I think it was a three waddle bellbird, which I know about from my time in Costa Rica, which is not a bird that exists in Hawaii. So somebody in the sound department knew to pipe in the correct type of bird background noise. <laughs> even though they were filming in Hawaii. That is an amazing detail. Uh, and yeah, that kind of sound mixing. Like, I think so much of this production is like just everyone kind of like taking care. Yeah. Is no, they brought their the whole product. Look at, I mean, mm-hmm. for, for your listeners, look it up. Three waddle bellbird. It's one of the most amazing birds. The three waddles. It means it has like a Fu Manchu mustache and it's one of the loudest birds in the world. It's call can be heard from up to a kilometer away. Um, it's a great bird. And birds are all dinosaurs, so you're, you know, you're just learning more about dinosaurs when you look it up. All right. Uh, the movie begins on an island where a group of workers is trying to move an unseen creature from a large container into a holding pen. The animal tries to escape, or the creature, I guess I should say. We don't know what exactly is in there at all. Uh, one worker is killed, though the creature does not escape. At an amber mine... Donald Gennaro is a representative from investors that is looking into the company behind the earlier accident. Also the companies behind this mine, a worker in the mine finds a chunk of Amber with a mosquito preserved in it. Donald Gennaro talks about finding experts who can look into the company's investments in Montana. Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler are working at a dinosaur dig. Sonar is being tested as a means of seeing fossils without having to dig. But Alan is wary of this new technology. He also hates kids. Just as I know, John Hammond arrives and offers to fund their project for several more years. If they will come to his Island and see unique biological attractions, that will be fun for the whole family. A disgruntled employee, Dennis Nedry is given the means to steal dinosaur embryos and smuggle them off the Island. Uh, He'll have to disable security to do so. This may be important later. We fly in the helicopter to the island with Hammond, Grant, Sattler, also Donald Gennaro, whom we have already met, and a new character, Ian Malcolm, a chaotician, as he likes to be called. Driving to the visitor center, they are stunned when they see a towering living brachiosaurus. A quick tour uh, takes care of all the clunky exposition that gummed up earlier drafts of the script. Eventually, at a certain point, Steven Spielberg just said, can we just do like an animated explanation of what's going on? <laughs> With it, as to why the dinosaurs are here and they worked it out uh, to have this little uh, sequence that visitors to Jurassic Park would actually see. Uh, we now know why dinosaurs are on this island. Gennaro loves everything he sees, which is mostly dollar signs, but Malcolm Grant and Sattler are all more skeptical. 
Grant, Sattler, Malcolm, and Gennaro are joined by Hammond's grandkids, Lex and Tim, and they are set off on an automated tour of Jurassic Park. It does not go well. No dinosaurs show up. A tropical storm is approaching. At one point, the group gets out of the vehicles to go see a Triceratops that is sick. Sattler stays behind with a staff doctor while everyone else goes back to their vehicles. As the cars are returning back to the compound because they're just calling it with the storm approaching, Nedry initiates his shutdown of key systems so that he can go steal the embryos. The storm is now hitting with full force. Uh, the cars shut down outside of the T-Rex pen. Nedry tries to drive. Uh, he's got he's got the embryos, and he tries to drive to to a boat to get off the island, but he gets lost in a panic. Uh, the T-Rex attacks the cars. Malcolm is injured, trying to distract the T-Rex. Gennaro is eaten after he ran away like a coward. Uh, Grant and Lex <laughs> manage to escape, but Tim is still in a car when it's pushed over an edge and falls into a tree. Nedry is killed by a Dilophosaurus. Uh, Sattler, along with the park warden Muldoon, arrive at the scene of the T-Rex attack, and they rescue Malcolm. The T-Rex reemerges and chases them in the jeep but the jeep is able to drive faster eventually once he, once he can get it into gear grant and lex uh, get down uh and grant uh climbs into the tree to get timmy out of the car as they're coming down the car falls down after them but they survive um arnold this is samuel jackson character is attempting to undo nedry's cyber attack and he has to reset to the entire system this does seem to mostly work but they have to go manually reset the power breakers at a shed he goes to go do that after they lose contact uh with him Settler and Muldoon uh, go and to try and find out what's going on. Muldoon sees velociraptors hunting them, and he directs Sattler to the shed while he prepares to shoot a velociraptor. But he has been outsmarted by the clever girls, and he gets eaten. Sattler resets the breakers, restoring power, but finds out that Arnold was killed in the shed, and there's a velociraptor in there with her. She freaks out and runs away. Grant gets the kids to the visitor center and leaves them uh, with some food while he goes to try and find out what's going on. Sattler escapes the shed and returns to the visitor center. The kids see a velociraptor is inside the visitor center, and they go hide in the kitchen where they are hunted in a very well-paced and designed scene that is terrifying. Uh, and, they, and then they finally escape. Uh, Grant and Sadler reunite and go with the kids to the computer room. Lex knows computers well and is able to reboot the system so they can contact the mainland. Velociraptors pursue them, and eventually they get out to the main lobby, and they're climbing on fossils to try and get above where the Velociraptors could reach them, and then a T-Rex arrives and eats one of the Velociraptors. The humans run out and meet Hammond and Malcolm, who are in a jeep. Uh, as the T-Rex bellows in triumph, having defeated the Velociraptors, the humans fly off in a helicopter. The end. I just want to say, summarizing it does not do justice to everything that is magical about this film. I mean, yeah, I was by, I was biting my tongue a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like this, this movie is like, it's probably in my top ten of like all time movies. I agree. Mm-hmm. Did did either of you catch the name of the amber mine in the Dominican Republic? Uh, I did not. I, I didn't track it. What is it? It is the Mano de Dios, the hand of oh. God. Hand of God. Which I feel like is appropriate because like uh, Hammond, like Hammond is acting as the hand of God. Like that's why, like that is his, mm-hmm. that is yeah. why he fails is because he, you know, he wants to control everything. Uh, yeah, th- this is um, a story that um, I-, I know a professor who edited a whole essay collection about adaptations of Frankenstein. Mm, and th- i'm pretty sure they included a chapter of jurassic park it, about adaptations of frankenstein interesting <laughs> yes. i've I, never made that I mean, connection it's more before. of a thematic no a no thematic but like, adaptation, no that makes a lot of sense it totally works interesting 
I had a chapter in that essay collection about a very obscure X-Men comic when they fight Frankenstein's monster in the 1960s. I forgot my favorite <laughs> dinosaur fact about this movie that is not actually a fact about this movie, but it is a, a suppositional fact that I believe about the world of Jurassic Park that has never been realized on in, in text or in film. <laughs> Would you like to hear it? Go on. So I mentioned earlier... <laughs> very that, much. I'm that, on the edge of my seat. I mentioned earlier that, like, paleontologically... And I'm not just talking about dinosaurs. I'm talking about all of life that has ever existed on Earth, including the plant that Ellie picks up before they see the Brachiosaurus, where she's like, this plant hasn't existed forever. Where did they get the plant DNA? By the way. Okay, I was going to ask you that, because that's mm-hmm. always bugged me, even since I was a kid, that we get the explanation for how they have dinosaur DNA. But then I was, I've was i always wondered, would they possibly be able to have plant DNA? Male mosquitoes do suck off of plants, but like that's neither here nor there. The thing that is... Because the whole idea is they have to inject the DNA into, like, an emu egg, and you can't do that for a plant. <laughs> so, so the plant stuff makes no sense. <laughs> but um, the, thing that always, the thing that always got in my head is, even, you know, you're pulling mosquitoes from amber, from a Dominican amber mine that isn't at the right age for most of these dinosaurs. I mean, they, they called it Jurassic Park. I've seen... I can't tell you how many articles that are like, most of these dinosaurs are from the Jurassic. I'm like, okay, well, like, that's not how, like, marketers don't care like about that. Um, the Dilophosaurus, I think, is the only dinosaur in this film that is a Jurassic dinosaur. Um, there's a reference to a Stegosaurus when Nedry is pulling the DNA stample, samples. The Stegosaurus is actually, a mis- it's misspelled in this movie, which is a pretty hilarious gaff for a dinosaur movie. Um... I, I like to believe that that was just their that was their trademarked name for Stegosaurus because they had to you know like it's it's the it's the it, whatever you know there's all these tech companies that misspell things on purpose to trademark them so it's the mm-hmm. it's the wordle of of Stegosaurus. Um, the thing about this the thing about this idea of pulling DNA from mosquitoes, if we are truly aware of only 1% of the dinosaur, 1% of life that's ever existed. Maybe the number is higher for dinosaurs because we care about dinosaurs and we, we look really hard for them. If you started taking DNA out of mosquitoes and injecting it into emu eggs and seeing what hatched, you would get dinosaurs we didn't know about. So you'd get new dinosaurs. Like you would discover new species that hadn't right. been known to and the And most paleontology- likely... More often than not, you're getting something new. Right. So, like, w- the the later movies where they're saying, oh, the reason, like, Indominus Rex isn't doesn't look like anything we know about is because we recombined the DNA. Like, just say, like, we pulled a thing out of a mosquito and it was crazy and we just, like, ran with it. Like, don't, <laughs> like, you don't have to, you don't have to, like, come up with these fanciful explanations of, like, our genetic technology. You can just say, we, we found something in a mosquito that was terrifying and we just cloned it because we don't, you know, we don't care. So... <laughs> Um, cause we're playing God. <laughs> so, so I, I, I think, I think that the movie is actually, you know, they're trying to recreate dinosaurs that we all know and love, but I actually think there's like a plot line to be done where they pull DNA out of a mosquito that is a dinosaur that no one ever knew about before. And I think that's actually a cool idea. And it's, it's kind of a bummer to me that they've never done that. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And like you said, it kind of you could have hand waved or explained away any choice that was made in the sequels to to do other dinosaurs. We're not and we're not here had to be more accurate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like Andrew, I'd say this is definitely a, a top ten film for me. Um, 
there's so much about it that works so well. The pacing of the action, which I love that we're like given this threat of the Velociraptors in the very opening scene and like reminded of the threat of Velociraptors, but we do not actually see Velociraptors for so long uh, in this film. And that opening sequence where we're like hinted at the danger of these dinosaurs, but we don't actually see anything. I can't remember which one of the sequels it was, but it was one that was I, I watched on an airplane because I, I, the Jurassic World ones have held, held less magic for me than this one. And I remember watching it on the airplane and like in the first five minutes, I think I saw more dinosaur violence <laughs> than is in the entirety of Jurassic Park. I may be misremembering that, but this takes so much care in pacing out the sense of suspense and threat that dinosaurs can present uh, to the humans. And I wish more action films had learned that lesson of uh you know delaying uh some of some of the the reveals of these sorts but of i also feel like i, I there's a lot of modern um, action films where like the the build-up is so obvious that i'm i get a little bored waiting for like okay come on like show, show me the thing like come on let's let's get to it mm-hmm. whereas this i'm because the characters are being introduced in sort of a sequence where it's like you're introducing muldoon and then you're introducing the the Gennaro, the lawyer and then you're the lawyer. you're introducing mm-hmm. uh Alan and Ellie and Hammond like they the way they stagger the introduction of the characters I'm interested in these people and so I'm willing to like stick with the story up until the danger is presented in a way where I I I think some modern action movies they just the, the balance of like I don't know the, the the magic just isn't isn't quite there you do have to have the people that you care about if you're holding off the reveals. <laughs> and uh, if you don't have the right combination of script and actor and director that can make you care about the characters, it may be a misfire to hold off on the reveals. And I think well, this, I mean, this I, movie... Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, I think it's interesting that you're categorizing this in action movie because I kind of functionally think it's like action horror right like it it's a scary movie like this should be a kid's first scary movie right because we talked about like the kitchen sequence is very like stalkery hunting threatening like the children are in danger the t-rex sequence is just the big bad monster yeah and and so like i think of this as like kind of a monster horror film at least as much if not more than an action film and that pacing is going to be a little bit different overall right I've thought about that a lot about like, you know, how do you categorize Jurassic Park? I fundamentally believe that Jurassic Park is an action adventure film in the same vein as the Indiana Joneses of the world. Um, Maybe not, maybe adjacent to a Jaws. Um, I don't know if there's any commonality between those movies. I'm just throwing films out there, but um, (laughs) I, I obviously there are sequences that are scary but like there's enough about there's enough about the spielberginess of it that is like it's about awe it's about wonder it's about humans mm. connecting with each other where like it doesn't I, I watch a lot of horror movies and like horror movies aren't often about characters truly connecting with each other in a deep and meaningful way like it's it's usually just about survival, and this movie, while it is a survival movie, it's an it's an action movie. It's it, there are parts of it that are really scary. It doesn't hit me in the same place emotionally that like a true horror movie or 
uh, uh, thriller or whatever does because like it's about these characters connecting through harrowing circumstances to the point where like the the kids that Grant is connecting with because um, I would like just I would like to at some point talk about Grant and his relationship with the kids because I think Spielberg was dealing with some stuff, but. The way Grant is connected with these kids. <laughs> this is right after Hook, if you're wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About him dealing with stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the trailer for Fableman's just dropped, if you need a little hint on what Spielberg's relationship with his dad was like. Um, so, so, I'm so excited for that movie. <laughs> it, looks, it looks fantastic. But the, the, um, the idea of this guy, and, and in the book... Alan Grant is a character who really likes kids because he likes that kids care about dinosaurs. And so like the, the changing of the character of Grant to be somebody who doesn't like kids and is put off by kids and has to come to like kids is like actually a construction of the film. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it transitions this movie from being a horror film to sort of a coming of age film, but like it's coming of age for characters Mm -hmm. like Grant, not necessarily the kids. And I don't know. It, it, um, it, it transcends genre, but I also think that's part of why it's so incredibly popular and has such dang power in the in the cultural consciousness. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think you're right. Calling it horror is not like totally accurate. Like it has elements where like, OK, the the vicious deaths are primarily for people who I guess we would say, you know, have have moral issues. Right. There's a greedy lawyer and he gets eaten pretty badly. Right. And. And, and, but uh, like other the than guy that, who who uh, ruined everyone's day <laughs> by shutting yeah. down the security system. Yeah, yeah, and but he like, gets a pretty bad death. But then you get some where it's like, it, like Muldoon is like Muldoon's not, you know, like in terms of like a horror film, he's not like puritanically sinful in the, any particular the way. But it's also like, like not the, wrong that the park is not ready. <laughs> well, yeah, but like, but that's I mean that's important. Yeah, he, like I feel well, like I think it's because he uh, he feels a little less moral when he immediately buys into everything because he just sees dollar signs and talks about how much they could charge and everything like that i I think ultimately and this goes back to something else that you said earlier where this film is is about like human connection and relationships and and everything like everyone who dies dies by going off on their own for there's also there's also not not the guy in the opening scene he was relying on everyone else to help him <laughs> get through that encounter, and he was yeah, except quite, for, quite except literally for that. But like the lawyer goes off on his own, and Ned, Nedry goes off on his own. <laughs> um, and like Muldoon is like, I'm gonna do this myself. I'm gonna you know kill the raptors, and he's like lone hunter, and then he and then he dies. I think, but like but, but Alan the, Grant is like, well, I'm gonna stay with the kids, and we survive. The body count for this movie is actually quite low. It's only four or five people that die. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's higher in the book. And one of the characters who dies in the book that doesn't die in the film is Hammond. And I think that's really interesting. Because in the book, Hammond is sort of an unrepentant capitalist. And like, he's more, he more, in the book, Hammond more represents the sort of lawyerly well what if we can still make a buck off this attitude and the lawyer is in the book is actually more heroic than than he is portrayed in in the film um and i think that's interesting i i, I don't I, I don't have like a grand point to make about it but i just think you know hammond you cast a guy like like rich Attenborough, and it's it's hard not to love him 
But in the book, like, he's kind of a bastard. And bleep that if you want. But, like, there's a scene in the movie where his grandkids are missing and he's eating ice cream. And, like, I actually kind of have a hard time sympathizing with this character because, like, you should be more worried about your grandkids right now. And you shouldn't be arguing philosophy with the 24-year-old paleobotanist. Um, I don't know. My yeah what do you guys think i think he's an interesting character like if we're going to talk about characters that change it's alan grant and hammond are probably the two that experience the greatest transformation but hammond's uh, the one i don't have sympathy, i don't to... have sympathy for whereas grant is yeah. the one i do have like, sympathy like for. Mm-hmm. uh like ian malcolm he's just kind of a stammering greek chorus the whole time <laughs> off to the side uh and uh you know ellie she is a fairly competent person just kind of straight through doesn't have the, at least we're not given the the starting point where there's a need for change the way we are with Grant and Hammond's transformation is kind of recognizing that maybe I overstepped, but it's like you said there, I, I, on the one hand, I kind of love the scene where he stops and talks philosophy in terms of exploring the themes of the film, but on the human level, it does seem odd <laughs> to have but in, in that scene, uh, you know, so, so in that scene, mm-hmm. Hammond says creation is an act of sheer will, which I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with, but that's what that character puts out mm-hmm. there. And that that scene comes after the fact that Malcolm says discovery is a violent penetrative act. And I actually think those are those are two statements in ju- juxtaposition with each other. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, Malcolm throughout the film is proved to be the soothsayer. You know, you, you referred to him as a Greek chorus, but I, I think he's like, he's, he's the guy who can predict everything that's going to go wrong. And so he, you know, he talks about discovery as a violent penetrative act. And like, what, what I'm not trying to get too heady with things, but like, what are we penetrating when we discover things? We're literally like penetrating the, the universe. We're saying like, what, what, what secrets is the universe holding that we can understand by, uh, I was I was um I was texting with a colleague earlier today about um, a research project, and and I said, "What is science if not measuring things carefully?" Right, but like in measuring things, you're you're you can be penetrative. Like if you want to take your temperature correctly, guess where the thermometer's going. So <laughs> I actually think Malcolm is right, and I think Hammond is the idealist who is not fully reckoning with everything that he has wrought. And I think that's, yeah, I think the text of the film bears that out, but I just, the, um, in rewatching the film for this conversation, the, the, the thoughts that I tried to write down were the thoughts that were new that I hadn't said out loud before that I hadn't, um, analyzed before. And that, that thought of the ice cream scene where I think you can see how delusional Hammond is. Like he's not, confronting the reality of what he has brought forth into the world. So when he says creation is an act of sheer will, I felt that that was in opposition to, to Malcolm's idea that discovery is a violent penetrative act. And I think Malcolm is proven right. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as, uh, as you noted, like from the human point of view, from the, like viewing this man as a grandfather, whose kids are out there, uh, on the one hand, there is the, like, what can I do? But on the other hand, sitting and eating ice cream probably isn't the thing you can be doing <laughs> at, at that. So it, it does, 
lead to the, I, I think less uh, care for the character or, or um, connection to the character than the transformation that we see from Alan Grant that's happening through, through his, you know, journey. And yeah, Alan Grant's journey is interesting. Cause like he literally spends about a day with these kids and it completely transforms, but you know, Ellie is teasing him literally in their first scene together about like having a kid. So it, it, it's built in. Um, he's a, Mm-hmm. He's awful to the kid about the turkey and the, the claw. <laughs> and, and the the thing, like I've been on, I've been on many paleontological digs in my day, including in not in Montana but in Wyoming. I've never been in a situation where a random kid could just walk up and start hassling us. <laughs> so like I don't know, I don't, I don't know where that kid comes from. <laughs> Which is not like it's not a dig. Like the scene it's, it's is not like there's a whole school field trip. Well, you you have volunteers, right? And sometimes those volunteers have kids, and but usually those kids are vetted, and like you you have people like there's there's an awareness of like who's there and why. Because if you've got a, a velociraptor skeleton right there on the surface, a kid with a rock hammer can do a lot of damage to that. So like you, you have an idea of who's there. Um, so I've never I've never been at a dig site. Where a kid can just randomly walk up and heckle me. <laughs> to the point where I can... <laughs> like, how many how many 12-year-olds want to heckle, like, the college professors that are running this thing? I don't and know. lecturing? According to Fox News, most of them. But, um, I also, like, <laughs> it's just... Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm more likely to carry a sloth claw, which is not nearly as sharp as a velociraptor claw. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> I just, I, I, that scene is hilarious, uh, because I don't know where that kid comes from, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's definitely one of those beats in a film where it's like, okay, this is establishing something about a character. It's not the kid. <laughs> well, okay. just here so, for us to learn something about Alan Grant right now. So the, this might be the perfect point to talk about Steven Spielberg and his fatherhood issues, right? Mm-hmm. So a theme that you can maybe find in a few Spielberg you, films. You may see some characters that are experiencing divorce in a Steven Spielberg <laughs> film. Quite often a child who is experiencing their parents' divorce in a Steven Spielberg film. To me, the the arc is um it's E.T. and then Hook and then Jurassic Park, and then what comes after Jurassic Park? Um well, Schindler's list. That's Where do you put a, Close Encounters in there, though? That's before E.T. That's that's like absolute right. fatherhood abandonment. Like, dad just pieces out, right? Like, dad literally is like, aliens would be yes. better than being a dad. So, so, so Close Encounters is like... Yeah, I Jaws ra- was earlier. Oh, I remember. I remember now. Okay, so it was Close Encounters... Jaws is like, I would rather be eaten by a shark than deal with my kids. Close Encounters is I would rather be abducted by aliens than deal with my kid. E.T. is like, my dad's in Mexico. I would rather go into space with aliens <laughs> as a kid. But like, it's kind of a fairy tale. It's nice, though. Like, it's getting a little, it's getting a little nicer, right? And then, and then we have Last Crusade, where it's like, my dad mm-hmm. sucked, but maybe we can like find some common ground. As adults, some re- right. reconciliation. And maybe. then Hook is like, my dad sucked, but maybe we can find some common ground as while I'm still a kid. And then Jurassic Park was like, maybe a dad can figure out how to be a dad while I'm still a kid. 
<laughs> and then Saving Private Ryan is AI? like, well, Saving Private Ryan is like, maybe my dad can rescue me while I'm like an adult. And then AI is like, maybe it goes on forever. <laughs> but like, it's, it's the, 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 the trend of it. it it's fascinating. Like, it's really interesting. And like, I, I, ha- I, I have nothing but fondness for Steven Spielberg. And like, I hope that his issues with his dad have been, you know, dealt with and worked out and that he is at peace and he is in, in a good place. And like, I'm fascinated by the idea of the Fablemans. Um, but like, you can kind of see him working out his issues with his dad and fatherhood in his films. And I honestly, I think 1993 hits kind of a, a, a interesting inflection point of like, there's a dad redemption arc in this movie that didn't exist before. And it doesn't, necessarily exist after like it's kind of a it's an inch it it is sort of the point of the teeter-totter right that and hook i think hook is is a part of the conversation as well am i crazy i don't know yeah and it's oh no no you're you're definitely right and it's the main transformation that we see in alan grant is um you know his his relationship with children coming from uh, I never want to have kids and I'm going to scare any kids that bother me with a claw <laughs> to uh, I'm just like Captain Hook snuggling up after we've Captain Hook also scares children with a claw. <laughs> You're making connections that I've never seen, but they feel so obvious once you say that. Yeah, I, I never well, made and, it before. And, case, <laughs> and then Alan Grant, like as soon as he's like, I guess I'm, I guess I'm a dad now. He like throws away the claw because he doesn't have to scare children. <laughs> But the, that scene yeah, where they're all, a lot they're of all getting, th- uh, go ahead. That, that scene where they're all getting in the Ford Explorers and like, I I find it's I, now that now that I am a dad, but not a dad of kids this old yet. The whole idea of like this, and this is the first time I've rewatched Jurassic Park as a dad. So like, I think this theme is playing out in different ways than it has before. But when he says to Tim, like, which car are you getting in? And Tim just says, whichever one you're in. And like it's so pure, and that that child actor does the, both the kid actors in this movie are fantastic. They do such a good job, mm-hmm. um, especially given what I know about how slapdash this production was. The fact that like they didn't have you know everyone else is adult professional actors, but these kids are, are bringing it every scene. Um, it's so great, and and I relish every time the camera cuts or pans to Laura Dern's reaction to how Alan Grant is dealing with the kids. Like, it's so good. <laughs> the way she just is constantly being like, I did this to you on purpose and you are failing, but I love you anyway and you'll get through this. <laughs> like, it's it's so good. Yeah, there's... When I talk about this being in the top 10 film, like, it's, it's pretty perfect in terms of the choices that are being made to tell this particular story. Uh, there's very few changes um I, obviously there's some scientific issues <laughs> that, that you're well aware of uh, in terms of how dinosaurs are presented but in terms of telling this story uh so much of it is just perfection as you as you move from a scene to scene like one of my favorite beats of the film is actually in the helicopter when they're uh struggling to get grant's seatbelt, uh and and they're like everyone's kind of arguing about it and then he grabs the two female ends of a seatbelt and ties them together to make it work what do you what do you think that it's mean, like oh what do you think that means he found a way no i don't know <laughs> yeah you sure it's, it's just a quick a quick visual symbol that you don't have to catch or track at all but once you do you're like oh someone cared <laughs> about uh do you, you, about you really think that him that... grabbing two female ends of a seatbelt and making it work 
meant anything. I don't know. I'm skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's that care to detail that, like you mentioned, the uh, the call of a bird in Costa Rica that that appears in the sound mix. You know, it's, it's just that like looking at, okay, what is this moment? matter to the story and another one that stands out to me is when i was rewatching it i was noticing like the the whole scene in the mine which is what two minutes of screen time maybe uh but looking at the way they build like the layers of the background when they're you know how far back you see through the mind and the way the light of all the helmets is playing across in the background and the way the beams are framed the whole mise-en-scene of that is so complex that they wanted to capture visually for the audience for a scene that is just a quick functionality of showing us a, a, a mosquito in amber really is the key, <laughs> you know, the, the key takeaway from this. But there's, they took the time to frame it with such depth that it's visually stunning. And it and it's not one of the big dinosaur scenes or anything. <laughs> this is well, a group of people standing around in a mine. And the sub the subtitles in that scene are a little inconsistent. And so like I, I was just listening because I've spent some time in Latin America and like everything they're saying in Spanish is absolutely on point for the scene like they're talking about mm-hmm. like you know uh bring the fine to me get me more light you know bring your light over here like it's all yeah, HMA la luz. <laughs> yeah. it's fantastic so like the often i feel um, like the authenticity of that scene makes up for the inauthenticity of finding t-rex dna in dominican amber like there's there's no reality where t-rex dna comes out of dominican amber but there is a reality of like the way they build up this scene with the mine and the workers and the the guy and and the way like paleontology is it's a small community there's not that many working paleontologists in the world like most of us know each other or know of each other like we're all you know it's if it was six degrees of seven bacon sorry if it was six degrees of kevin bacon it would probably be like three or four and so mm-hmm. the scene where he goes, oh, you never get Grandpa out of Montana. He's like me. He's a digger. Like that to <laughs> me represents so much of like the sort of network of paleontologists that we all know each other. And we know like, oh, yeah, that guy's like he's a he's a field guy. Like he just wants to dig stuff up versus like you have people who are museum guys. We're like, no, he just wants to open up drawers and analyze things from the museum collections like that's that's actually like that's real insight into the characteristics of these people that are out there doing the work and and that scene that that like you said that two minute scene in the dominican mind brings so much to the film in terms of the characterization in terms of the background in terms of like just everything it's it's fantastic Mm -hmm. i feel like like hearing you both talk about it it's like it's like every not every scene but most of the scenes in this just by Spielberg and the actors and all of the production people and the sound Let's design and everything. John Williams score. Yeah. Like oh. everything just works together to make most of these scenes like 1% better than someone else would do it. And when you have a bunch of those scenes that are 1% better than what everyone else would do, you get, you just get a movie that's like amazing and perfect, right? Like, like Nedry and Dodson at the cafe, having the conversation about the Barbasol and everything like something about that is 1% better than someone else would do. And I think it's when he pours the, he, he sprays the mm-hmm. foam and then he puts it on the pumpkin pie. I think that's the 1% improvement. And it's, that's arguably that like, it's just like, that's arguably my least favorite scene in the entire movie. And I delight in it because it's ridiculous. 
Mm-hmm. Or like I was thinking about like okay, what are the things that are like really memorable for for me Hold in this movie? And I started butts. thinking about like the, <laughs> the how does he keep that cigarette in his mouth? It's incredible. It's the dangliest cigarette. It's because in film it's because history. we weren't adults in the early nineties, so we don't know how to keep a cigarette in our mouths like that. Um, but like I was also thinking of, of like the different set pieces that there are throughout this movie. And there's like a lot of them. I think of like the tree, the car in the tree as like a separate set piece from the T-Rex. It's incredible. Yeah. Also, how does the T-Rex step over the fence? <laughs> and then there's this huge <laughs> drop off. Yeah. But when you're watching it, you really don't care. No, uh, it's not you, a problem when you're watching it. <laughs> like the, to me, Spielberg, you know, like it's movie magic. It's you don't mm-hmm. care when you're watching it because it's done effectively. And that's. Mm-hmm. that's all you need and, and it's just there's so many like amazing little things that just amp it up like the the t-rex stuff like has many set pieces where suddenly like alan grant has lex on his back and he is starting to like work his he's like repelling down it's the, great. the it's side and it's like that's a mini set piece in that where he's like and he's scooching to the side he's like i gotta grab the other the other wire because the car's gonna get tipped over and it's like all these little things is just make it a little bit better. And I mean, I don't know what it is that does that, but it's the little things like in, um, in the beginning when they see the, the Brachiosaurus for the first time, it like lands and the camera shakes, right? Oh, the ground shakes from the it's camera. So good. It's so good. The Gallimimuses run and they like tip the, the log that they're mm-hmm. hiding behind as they're jumping over it. It's like, Oh, those little 1% things just elevate this and it makes you forgive like less effective cgi there's a hilarious youtube video that i saw that my wife and i quote often where they've edit they edit out the brachiosaurus <laughs> and so it's so it's alan grant and ellie Sattler like collapsing to their knees in awe and wonder at just like a eucalyptus tree there's also like a whole there's a whole thing about how like eucalyptus trees hadn't evolved by the time Brachiosaurus was alive. So like a Brachiosaurus eating eucalyptus, which is the tree that it's eating off of when it rears up and eats, it would probably be toxic, but whatever. It's not, <laughs> not the point. Like I've got 10,000 nitpicks to this movie, but like, that's not the point of this movie. The point of this movie is to remind us of like how awe inspiring it is to discover something new. And I think that's important. Like as a scientist and as a person and as a person who enjoys film, I think these are important themes to like enjoy and embrace. So like, I'm not here to nitpick this movie 10,000 times. I don't, I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this little YouTube video, they edit out the Brachiosaurus and it's just Grant and Statler falling to their knees in awe of a eucalyptus tree. And it's Hammond saying, welcome to park. And it's not just like, <laughs> it's just the concept of parks. And as a person who loves the national park system and loves state parks and county, but whatever park you have in your neighborhood, go enjoy your local park. Yes, you should be in as in awe of your parks as you would be if there was a Brachiosaurus there. But it's just it's it's hilarious. Um, you've dropped a few quotes, but one thing that I think does stand out about this film is how quotable it is without trying to be quotable. Um, some movies and TV shows today, I feel like sometimes they're filming a scene for the GIF. Uh, <laughs> like, you're, you know, the reaction shot is planned to be a GIF with the whatever line is being said underneath it. But there's moments in this like, hold on to your butts or a uh, clever girl or shoot ah, that just are embedded in my brain. <laughs> and I don't feel like it was ever 
like playing for the most quotable film, but it has so many wonderful quotes in this. I agree. And I, I think, you know, a lot of them I think are original to the film. I don't think a lot of them come from the book because most of the, the, most of the characters aren't, you know, portrayed the same way as they're in the, in the book. The one, there are two quotes that I picked up on this rewatch that I hadn't noticed before. One is where Nedry, when uh, Hammond is is berating him for the way he's done something with the computer system, says, thanks, Dad. And I'm like, was that Spielberg? Was that Spielberg saying something? <laughs> but the, <laughs> the other is when they, they come across the um, sickly Triceratops. And Grant asks one of the Jurassic Park employees, like, can I approach the Triceratops? And the employee says, of course. And I, I'm pretty sure I, I wrote it down while I was watching. So I'm pretty sure the employee said, of course. And I've, I've worked with a lot of wild animals <laughs> in my career. And I can't imagine a scenario where a stranger walked up to me where I was monitoring a sick animal <laughs> and said, hey, can I approach the, the sick animal? And I would just be like, yeah, sure. Go do whatever. I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your qualifications are. But yeah, go check out that sick animal. Um, the, the, the phrase I use when... And I work, the majority of my research when it comes to wild animals are sloths. Not the, not the, the they're, they're the anti-velociraptors of the natural world, right? <laughs> they could not be slower and less prone to fly through the air. Than, um, and, and the thing people always, you know, not always, but the thing people ask me is like, are sloths dangerous or do I need to be worried and what I tell them is like, no, like, I don't, I don't advise people to be like scared of animals, but anything with a mouth can bite you. <laughs> so like the fact that this, this employee of this park that is already having legal issues is just like, yeah, walk up to the triceratops. Yeah. Ellie, stick your fingers in its mouth, grab stuff off its tongue. It's fine. <laughs> Squeeze that pustule right on the right. tongue. <laughs> it's probably not going to react and clamp down. <laughs> Especially since the the you know I think you know if I have a quibble about the the character design of the dinosaurs, the the way the Triceratops is done, it looks more like a fossil Triceratops than I imagine a living Triceratops looked. I like the beak and the horns are very like cracked and craggly, whereas I imagine in life they would have been smoothed and sharper and and more functional. Um, it's interesting that, like, I, I, I presume it was some aspect of the production design, but in the book, that scene is about a stegosaurus. And the, hmm. the in the movie, you'll notice there's never any resolution to that scene with why is the Triceratops sick? Yeah. And in the book, is there uh, is this part of like the some something to do with the changes that they're not? catching on to that's allowing uh birth to happen out in the wild no not really actually no um in the book it's because stegosaurs were a jurassic animal so they were an animal that lived in the jurassic era in it triceratops was a cretaceous animal late a late cretaceous animal that lived much later in time so um they're not actually that they're they're related as all dinosaurs are and as all life is, but the the Triceratops is a a a more derived 
So in evolutionary biology, we, we, we try to say, we try to avoid saying more advanced or more evolved. We try to say more derived in that just it had more time to evolve, but it's not like better. It just had more time. So um, Stegosaurus is a more basal animal. Uh, Triceratops is a more derived animal. So Stegosaur didn't have the same dental structures that Triceratops had, it didn't have the same digestive structures. So this, the, the, the resolution they're hinting at in that scene is because there's a scene, there's a moment where Ellie picks up some, some smooth stones at the base of the plant that they said that the, the Triceratops wasn't eating. In the book, it's heavily implied, it might even be fully revealed, that the Stegosaur was rooting around for gastroliths, which uh, literally means stomach stones. So it's essentially the stegosaur needed to eat rocks to create more digestive friction in its stomach so that the, the food that it was eating got tumbled around and got broken down physically by the stones in its stomach because its teeth weren't that advanced. Whereas Triceratops actually had one of the most advanced dental structures that's ever evolved on planet Earth, arguably more advanced than anything alive today um so that's it's interesting that they chose knowledge is just raining down on me i did not know this about <laughs> triceratops dental structures right well, it's, got, it's got this it's got this beak it's got this rostrum like so you know we say that birds are descended from dinosaurs and like birds have beaks but the thing about birds is all birds descend from uh um theropod dinosaurs so they all birds alive today come from the velociraptor tyrannosaurus line and the, the major split in dinosaur evolution comes pretty early on, and it's based on the hip structure. So there's a moment in the early scene with Grant discussing the, the hip structure of Velociraptor. He says, look at the hip uh, the hip bones. They're, they're curved forward like a bird. He's referring to the pubis bone, and that's an uh, ornith- ornithischian pelvic structure. Ornithischian literally means bird-hipped. The, the irony is when we were describing all these dinosaurs back in the 1800s, you know, we again being the scientific apparatus that is also the human knowledge apparatus. So when I say we, I'm referring to everyone like you, me, all of us listening. Um, so there's two types of dinosaurs. There's Sauriscian dinosaurs, which are lizard hipped dinosaurs. And there's Ornithischian dinosaurs, which are bird hipped dinosaurs. And it's hard to explain this without a diagram, but... Suffice it to say, there's only two types of Sauriscian dinosaurs. The theropods, which are the meat-eating dinosaurs, and the sauropods, which are the long-necked dinosaurs. All other dinosaurs are the Ornithischian dinosaurs, so like every other dinosaur you can think of. The head-butting Pachycephalosaurans, the Stegosaurus with the Thagomizers on the tail, the Triceratops with the... The, the uh, horns on the face, the Parasaurolophus, the, the hadrosaurs, the, the duckbill dinosaurs, they're all Ornithischian dinosaurs. And here's the crazy irony. That entire branch of dinosaurs is extinct. It is only <laughs> the theropod dinosaurs, the meat-eating dinosaurs, the T-Rexes, the Allosauruses, the Ceratosauruses, the, th- uh, the Therizinosauruses, which I believe were featured in the most recent Jurassic movie that I didn't see, but is one of my favorite dinosaurs. The, the theropod dinosaurs, ironically, the word theropod means beast foot or mammal foot, but the theropod dinosaurs of the lizard-hipped branch 
are the ones that become the birds. So eventually that hip orientation flips back again, and we end up with Archaeopteryx and all the birds to follow. Okay, I'm... I feel like this is something I do at the end normally, but could you plug your other, your podcast real quick? Cause I think some listeners may want to just go listen to more of this kind of <laughs> uh, deluge of scientific information. Uh, my podcast is called science sort of it's, it's literally this it's, it's scientists who are also interested in pop culture, but want to talk about science in a way that isn't overly formal is um, inclusive, brings everyone into the fold says, Hey, you know, are you interested in science? Come, Join us. Let's talk about science. Let's not be too serious about it. Let's, let's, my, my favorite example of what our podcast can be about at its peak is there was a paper that was published that was, um, it was an ecological model of Sasquatch published by real ecologists, not, not involved with our show, but like a real group of ecologists who were like, what, you know, Ecological models are often published based on sort of reported sightings of where these animals exist. And they were like, well, let's do one of, of Bigfoot. And they did it. And then they realized it was just black bears. And I'm like, that's, that's exactly what our show is, is it's, it's people taking ridiculous concepts, but interpreting them with like sincerity and scientific acumen and coming up with actual explanations for what's going on, but, and just discussing it and having fun with it, talking about pop culture, talking about sci-fi. Um, and that's, that's the show. Well, thank you for all, everything that you've shared. We are maybe just a touch long for a typical episode. That is not a complaint. That is, uh, I, I don't expect very much to be edited out <laughs> from this conversation because I've, I've enjoyed all of it. Do you have any final thoughts on Jurassic Park before we fully wrap up? I think in recent viewings, Ellie has become my favorite character. I know um, she doesn't have the most growth as the other characters do, but I just think what Laura Dern brings that character is so far removed from what the book offers her that I just really appreciate what she's doing with it. And I think in terms of like a representation of a female scientist, a a, a strong character, her um, line, when, when a guy who uses a cane says, maybe I should run across the campus to like turn the breakers back on. And she says, look, we can discuss sexism and survival situations when I get back. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) I think she's fantastic. And she's become kind of my favorite character in this whole situation. Uh, another observation I had when watching this movie, this, this most recent time is I think the person pinned to Nedry's computer uh, is Robert Oppenheimer, the architect of the atom bomb. I am become death destroyer of worlds. And that I think fits for Nedry's character. Um, I, I, also I, a th- you know, the, the general themes of the movie that, that fits. Yes. <laughs> what are we unleashing? <laughs> um, I, I, there's a video on YouTube from a YouTube channel that I really like called Cinefix that is, it does, it does a breakdown of like, what are the differences between the book and the movie? So I didn't have time to reread the book, but I watched that video cause I, I like their videos a lot. And it reminded me that at the end of the novel, the Island is bombed by the Costa Rican air force. So fun fact, Costa Rica has not had an, a military since 1954. 
I want to say. Um, Costa Rica disbanded its military after World War II because they were like, yeah, that seems dumb. We should not have one of those. So um, Costa Rica does not have bombers ready ready to launch to bomb privately held islands full of dinosaurs. And I just, I don't know. It To, to me, like... Michael Michael Crichton's and I's politics are not super in sync, especially later in his life. But just the idea that like he couldn't Google whether or not Costa Rica had an air force in 1993 uh, feels a little silly to me. But I'll end by saying I think the movie is fantastic. It 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 builds on the source material in such a beautiful way. And one of my absolute favorite shots is when the raptor is standing in the command center and the the dna code the gattaca of it is projected oh. on its face oh yeah i'm amazing so good uh, it, so many like individual shots that you can point to and say let's talk about the genius of this shot like you oh. can do that for so much of this film i have, it one, I have one last dinosaur fact. accomplishment my my last dinosaur fact is grant throws off a lot of comments about the dinosaurs being warm-blooded and it's like, it's kind of in the background. Like, he's kind of saying, like, oh, what's their basal temperature? Oh, we've, you know, 91 degrees or whatever. But while some of that dialogue, I think, kind of gets lost in the film, the reason that it matters is because, A, these animals probably were on the, you know, being warm-blooded or cold-blooded is, is a spectrum. It's not like an all-or-nothing thing. But the reason it's cool, or warm, depending on your perspective, is that in the kitchen scene that we all love when the raptors put their face against the window and they snort and the window fogs up that only happens if you're warm blooded cuz the 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 air more, the more discovery for me the goodness. air in your body has to be warmer than the air outside your body for it to fog the window right i would never have thought of that but once you say it out loud i i can see that makes sense and to me, like, in terms of the drama of that scene, it's like an essential part of what makes that scene terrifying. But it's it it's actually been built up in multiple discussions throughout the course of the movie. But like it's a it's a tiny little detail. And, and I think a lot of this discussion has been about like why getting the details right matters. And oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you have any final thoughts on Jurassic Park? I feel like I should not say anything extra <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Ryan. And uh, as a first-time guest, we, as a podcast that celebrates great characters and great stories, always ask, if you could host a dinner party with a handful of fictional characters, who would you want to invite to hang out with for an evening? I have an answer. I will be brief because I know we've run a little long. Um I like to work on the, the Mount Rushmore model, so I'm just going to pick four. And my four are... It's a solid methodology. Clark Kent. But, like, I don't want anyone else to know. I don't want anyone else to, at the party to know that he's Superman. I just want me to know. <laughs> so just Clark Kent. <laughs> um, Luke Skywalker, who would never figure out that Clark Kent is Superman, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um... I want I want we Brendan... have a history of surprise reveals. Right, he does. <laughs> Multiple surprise reveals. <laughs> I want I want Brendan Fraser's George of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. Cause uh that was a uh, you know, my wife and I are both my wife's a huge fan of the mummy. 
uh, mm-hmm. with him and Rachel Weiss. As I mean, everyone human, should be. Right? <laughs> right. As all thinking and living and breathing humans should be. But, like, I'm a George of the Jungle guy, and we, she and I rewatched George of the Jungle Fair. recently. If you want to do a protagonist podcast on George of the Jungle, please. Okay. Get- I, I rewatched that, like, three weeks ago with my seven-year-old. And let me tell you, seven-year-old is it, seven is the right age to show that movie to a child. Thirty-five <laughs> is the, dying. Thirty-five is the right age. It's a hilarious movie. <laughs> I was gonna say, please get Brandon Fraser for that episode if you can. But if you can't get Brandon Fraser, I am available. <laughs> um, and then my we'll, we'll reach out to our people. You know, we'll have our people we'll reach out to his people. Because <laughs> I just, oh god, I, I I was wearing something the other day, and my wife was like, "Why'd you put that on?" I said, "I don't know." George just felt like looking special, I guess. And look, it's anyway. I don't have time. Um, my final guest at the dinner party is the answer to the question that nobody asked, Lisa Simpson. I want Lisa at my party because she's she's just an amazing intellectual in a town full of no one who appreciates her. <laughs> that is an amazing grouping. I love the idea of oh, Clark yeah. Kent, but no one knows it's Superman, man, but you. Uh, Luke Skywalker, uh, George of the Jungle, and Lisa Simpson. That That would be a party. I think we'd have a good discussion. Well, Ryan. Oh, yeah. It would be amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, I do a podcast called Science Sort Of. I'm on Twitter at Haupt, H-A-U-P-T. I'm on Instagram at at Ryan Haupt, uh, R-Y-A-N-H-A-U-P-T. I'm a frequent contributor to the iFanboy podcast universe, which I believe is what helped me get on the radar of Joe and be invited onto this particular program. And yeah, I, uh, I work for the, I I work for the national youth science foundation, which is a STEM education outreach organization based in West Virginia. So any West Virginia or Appalachian listeners who are looking for some STEM education outreach opportunities or, um, Edu- educators in that area please you know reach out to me uh, nysf.com or, or uh, just find me on any of those socials and message me and, and I'd be happy to help you find uh, educational opportunities for the students in your area wherever they may be well thank you again Ryan and thank you listeners for downloading this episode for show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows you can go to DuelingGenre.com also please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we would like to thank Scott Top to you who composed our theme music thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story so long This is me starting my recording, so you have some audio to sync up with when I started my recording. Excellent. He's a pro.